This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic from Bloomberg Radio. Welcome to the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week. Tim, it was your first full week with me as co-host of Business Week. So great to have you here. And listen, it was our first full week of the new year, week 43, working from home still for so many. We've been in our New York studio together covering a time that will be embedded in U.S. history forever because of a mob of Trump supporters laying siege of the U.S. Capitol. On Wednesday, Carol, you and I were covering this live with a lot of help from our reporters in Washington. And it was remarkable to see it play out play by play. And politics definitely front and center as COVID-19 continues to rage on here in the U.S. and around the world, causing more and more economic shutdowns. And with that as our backdrop, we'll hear from Chris Liu, former Deputy Secretary of Labor under the Obama administration and Executive Director of Barack Obama's 2008 transition team. He's also a member of Joe Biden's transition team. So great conversation. Looking forward to that. Also, we cannot let down our vigilance. We can't assume that a vaccine is going to be the panacea. The founder of Human Genome Sciences, Dr. William Hazeltine, on the virus's worrisome headlines. And the chief information officer at BNY Mellon's Pershing on pandemic tech trends that are taking off. All of that to come, Tim, though, we begin with this week's cover story, the trashing of American democracy, a new low in American politics, and its almost 250-year-old democracy. We caught up with Bloomberg Business Week national correspondent Josh Green and Bloomberg Business Week editor Joel Weber on this story that is told through pictures and a timeline. Just to give you a sense of uh, kind of what, what what we go through at a magazine is, you know, <laughs> Wednesday, we, we tend to, we, we ship the covers, uh, ship a lot of the magazine on Wednesday. We were ready to go with a completely different cover and I actually released that file and then immediately <laughs> clawed it back when we witnessed what was happening in D.C. Because it's like, how could you not talk about what was happening in yeah. the nation's capital? And, and um, Josh actually had nothing to do with what we ended up doing in the issue because everything unfolded so quickly and we are on such a tight um, timeline. And, you know, the, the trashing of American democracy seemed exactly like the right line to use. Um, main cover line was was new low and and it really felt that way and still feels that way way today. So I think we made the right call and who knows if the world will ever see that other great idea. Uh, hopefully they will. But jo- the reason I wanted to bring Josh on the program today is just because I think, you know, because of Devil's Bargain and, and he sort of his, his knowledge of, of Bannon, it gave us a really early sense of how how real the Trump effect was going to be. And, and so, and ditto the cover story he had a couple of months ago on the coming out of the, the election of uh, Trumpism is here to stay. So, so Josh, like, help me understand, do you think Trumpism is still here to stay? Yeah, I, I certainly think it is a kind of an ugly reminder of its enduring power with a not insubstantial uh, group of hard right wing Republican voters. Um, you know, as, as, we see things here in Washington, you know, a lot of times elected officials, uh, Republican senators and House members go along with this this sort of thing and, and indulge Trump out of a sense of you know, careerism and opportunity and, uh, you know, a, a desire to advance within the party and a fear of, of their own Republican voters. And I think yesterday illustrated the danger in indulging this sort of thing and indulging Trump. Um, but, you know, to me, one of the most horrifying things we witnessed was that after this violence that left four people dead, uh, the, 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 the Capitol overrun for the first time since 1812, was that a majority 
went ahead anyway afterwards once Congress reconvened in the middle of the night uh, and objected to Joe Biden's victory. So I think that that shows you that even after this kind of mayhem, violence, death, terrorism, um, that Republicans or a certain segment of them are still going to march in line behind Donald Trump and whatever it is that he wants to do. Uh, and I think that's a good indication that there isn't going to be a clean break on January 20th and that, that the country isn't going to be able to move beyond Trump, certainly not the Republican Party. Josh, we, we had you joining us live on the radio as this was taking place on the in the Capitol um, for your immediate reaction, for your immediate analysis. But I'm wondering to sort of think back on, on what happened. Um, what's the damage that's been done? No, I don't think we can begin to really know the answer to that question. I mean, you know, part of the damage, I think, is is psychological and knowing that our country is susceptible to this sort of thing. I think part of the damage um, comes to the reputa- reputation of the United States and the world. I mean, it's certainly tarnished and, and, and diminished our standing even further uh, in the uh, in the eyes of allies and, and and foreign countries, I mean one of the one of the things was uh, the leaders of of autocratic or dictatorial countries uh, essentially trolling the United States by releasing official mm-hmm. statements, you know, expressing concern over the violence, death, and mayhem in the U.S. Capitol. Uh, it, it, it's just remarkable and, and, and almost unthinkable that this could have happened here. Uh, and then we still have two weeks to go, and and you know who knows? I mean, every day things seem to get worse in Washington. You you don't think it can get worse, and then you turn on the news and see people overrunning the Capitol, uh, fighting, being killed. Um, so you know, in, until Trump is out of office on January twentieth, which I do think will happen eventually, right? Um, you know, we we really don't have the kind of distance and perspective that we need to to answer that question. How significant is it that um, social media companies have intervened, at, at least some of them, slightly? You know, in all seriousness, I think that is a really big deal. I mean, I think it's commendable what Twitter did, freezing Donald Trump's account and Facebook, essentially kicking him off the platform until he leaves office. That story told in pictures, so definitely check it out at Bloomberg.com or on the Bloomberg Terminal. That was Bloomberg Businessweek national correspondent Josh Green and Bloomberg Businessweek editor Joel Weber. Coming up, more on this week's top story. It's our cover story. We're going to check in with Chris Liu, former Deputy Secretary of Labor under the Obama administration, Executive Director of Barack Obama's 2008 transition team. He's also part of Joe Biden's transition team. You're listening to Bloomberg Businessweek. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic from Bloomberg Radio. So he's a voice that we've reached out to often to talk about the inner workings of an administration, what really goes on inside the White House. Tim, we're talking about Chris Liu. Yeah, that's right, Carol. Chris is former Deputy Secretary of Labor under the Obama administration. He's also a senior fellow at the University of Virginia Miller Center. Chris was also executive director of Barack Obama's 2008 transition team, and he's a member of the Biden transition team. This is why we love to talk to him. We, of course, had to get his thoughts on this week's tests of democracy. Well, as somebody who spent a dozen years on Capitol Hill uh, in both the Senate and the House, I mean, it was shocking, but that's even sort of an understatement. The U.S. Capitol is one of the most secure facilities in the country. You know, it's, uh, it's protecting our uh, highest elected leaders. Uh, it's where deliberations happen in the House and Senate. I mean, and to see those people storming in as easily as they apparently did, 
causing the kind of havoc, disrupting the proceedings. Um, it, it's you know we keep saying this is not who we are as Americans, but it clearly is, and I think it's going to require a lot of soul searching about how we got to this point. How does the country move on from this? Where do we go from here? You know, I think um, the president-elect Joe Biden sent sent the right message. You know, he he he's continuing to talk about healing. Uh, you know, really going back to the beginning of his campaign that this was a battle for the soul of our nation. Uh, I think he is going to try to obviously take the temperature down on the rhetoric, uh, notwithstanding the fact that he's going to control both the House and Senate. He's going to he has indicated he's going to continue to work for bipartisan solutions. Um, but I think we need to recognize that there is a very strong anti-government under, and it's not just anti-government, anti-all institutions uh, undercurrent in our country right now, and, and that just continues to fester, and that's been a long-term problem in this country. You know, we just talked, Chris, about the cover of Bloomberg Businessweek magazine this week, and this wasn't their plan, but they had to do a quick change because there was no doubt about it what the cover had to be. And in big letters, it says new low, and underneath it, it says the trashing of American democracy, and it shows the Capitol uh, and the protesters just climbing the walls and all the way up. You said something, though, that really resonated. You said, clearly, this is who we are as Americans, these protesters. You know, it does feel like half the country is this way. You know, a lot of people thought there was fraud in the election. Uh, There's division even within each of the parties in terms of some of the younger members, the older members, you know, the Republicans, the same thing. And I do wonder, how do we kind of bring it all together so we go back to a time where people did cross uh, across the aisle or reach across the aisle and actually get things done that benefited more Americans, most Americans? You know, look, I, I, I watched uh, the remarks both before and after the violence. Uh, I was struck by Senator McConnell's comments where I think he really appropriately talked about that there was no election fraud. This was not a particularly close election. You know, it is now the time to move on. And while I can applaud Senator McConnell and, and other Republicans who gave statements, one wonders why those statements were not made two months ago. We, right. we have known for two months who this election results are. And I think we do need to be careful. I mean, look, I'm not, I'm not being partisan, yeah. but this is not a both sides are wrong. I mean, we have a president, sitting president, who even before Election Day has said if he does not win, it will be because of fraud and has continued to perpetuate this idea. And so it's not surprising that there is a significant percentage of people in this country that believe there's fraud, notwithstanding the fact that the Department of Homeland Security uh, Mr. Trump's own former attorney general have all said there is no fraud. This has now been litigated in over 60 court cases around the country. So, you know, look, I mean, it's, uh, it, it's, 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 there's an underlying distrust in government that is being um, exploited by, you know, elected officials. You've got uh, a bifurcated, not even bifurcated, you've got a, a diverse media uh, atmosphere where people can watch whatever news they want. There's, there's a lot going on here. I think Joe Biden can be part of the solution, but he won't be the entire solution. Do you think part of the solution is invoking the 25th Amendment for the president's remaining days or impeaching the president, as lawmakers have suggested? I, I guess I'd say this. Uh, I do think there needs to be a strong message sent that this is not acceptable conduct. Um, but we are only left with 13 days left. That, that being said, I mean, you know, we have seen just over the course of 24 hours what one person's words can do. And I go back to 
you know, what Joe Biden said in his remarks. He said, you know, the president's words matter. At their best, they can inspire, and at their worst, they can incite. And that's what happened. And so I think we should all brace ourselves, um, because I I don't, you know, I think as fewer and fewer guardrails exist around this president, he, he remains a very unpredictable and potentially dangerous person right now. So Chris, I do want to ask you about kind of the role of all of us in being responsible citizens, responsible members of the media. I know we try to be very careful here. We are careful at Bloomberg, but I do wonder, there was so much coverage of everything and anything that Donald Trump did and his team did. And I think we also kind of struggled with it sometimes, whether it was really news uh, and whether or not, you know, who, our responsibility in kind of fueling some of the fury. Yeah, you know, and I think this is a legitimate uh, concern that people really need to examine. And it goes back to the 2016 presidential campaign when you had networks that would run Trump's rallies, you know, from start to finish giving him a disproportionate amount of airtime, but also at the same time airing a lot of, you know, the falsehoods that we have all gotten used to now. And the theory is always, well, you know, it's news. Well, just because it's news or might be newsworthy doesn't mean it needs to be put out there. And, and how do you properly re- refute the, 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 the false allegations um, in that? And how do you do that in real time? And then it continues all the way to, you know, whether it's, you know, his press conferences he did early uh, in his administration, or the the COVID daily briefings that he did through mm-hmm. last uh, spring and summer, uh, where he was just dispensing harmful misinformation, and then obviously what we've seen with you know Facebook and Twitter both suspending him. Um, you know wh- wh- what is what is the role of social media as well? So uh, you know it, we've never had a president who has pushed the limits on disinformation as much, and you know the theory had always been you know what the president says matters and needs to be covered. Maybe that shouldn't be the rule going forward. That was former Deputy Secretary of Labor and Senior Fellow at the University of Virginia Miller Center, Chris Liu, a member of President-elect Joe Biden's transition team. Still ahead with our focus on politics this week, so easy at times to forget that we are, yes, in the midst of a raging health pandemic. We will get this under control in a way that lets our lives go on, but it won't be easy. We've got to be vigilant. We've got to replace complacency with vigilance. Access Health International President Dr. William Hazeltine on a health epidemic out of control. Still to come on Bloomberg Business Week. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic from Bloomberg Radio. This week, the U.S. reported a record number of daily deaths from COVID-19, while confirmed cases globally climbed by an all-time high. One trusted and informed voice for us on the coronavirus, Tim, it's Access Health International Chairman and President Dr. William Hazeltine. Yeah, Dr. Hazeltine has founded more than a dozen biotech companies, including Human Genome Sciences. He's also founder of Harvard Medical's Cancer and HIV-AIDS Research Departments. And I got to say some startling words from him. We started off, Tim, talking about how he's making sense of the latest round of COVID headlines. With respect to the headlines, they're very upsetting because we see an epidemic out of control in many countries. And when they try to control it, the moment they release it, the the infection's popping back up. Unless you were able to control this infection early on, like China and a few other countries did, you're really in the soup for a long time. And thank goodness we have vaccines. Have you gotten... On the other hand, 
yeah, have I got the vaccine? Not yeah. yet. No, I'm not not eligible yet. But we <laughs> we're all waiting for the vaccines. I can tell you. That's the first story. The second story, of course, is virus variation. All of those who uh, who worked with HIV, this is like our old ghost coming back to haunt us. And uh, it's just a uh, very serious situation because the um, virus obviously is changing in response to immune pressure. Whether or not it's getting around the vaccines, I think it's only a matter of time. Hmm. It may already have done so. And the uh, optimism that people have that it's not gotten around the vaccines already is, I think, misplaced. Let me tell you the reason I think that. There was a patient in Great Britain who had a prolonged infection because the patient was immune suppressed. 23 samples of virus were taken during the patient's treatment. The treatment was convalescent sera. That's people who successfully fought off the virus. That patient got three successive rounds. And over time, because they were sampling frequently, you could see variations arise and the virus became resistant to convalescent sera. Mm. If it becomes resistant to convalescent sera, that means it can get around our natural immunity. And if it can get around our natural immunity, it's very likely it can get around our uh, artificial immunity that we create with vaccines. Would, would, are you talking about so this would, this would be problem. the case with mRNA vaccines and, and other ways that vaccines have and are being developed? Any vaccine. I'm talking about any vaccine. Hmm. Well, and the strains that the variants, are they usually stronger, tougher to deal with, or not necessarily? Then the idea that they're weaker is wrong. They are not necessarily weaker. In some cases, they're more potent, i.e. more transmissible, uh, and mm -hmm. grow to higher titers, higher concentrations in people who are infected. So there's very worrying observations out there today. It felt pretty ominous uh, hearing what you had to say about variants and kind of where we go from here when it comes to COVID. So it made me feel like we never get out of it. Help me set the record straight. Is that fair or is it just a case that it's going to take longer? How do you see it? I see this as a constant battle against this virus like we fight against the flu virus. I don't think it's going to paralyze our economies and keep us in the house as it does now, I think we'll have effective measures. We'll have much faster diagnostics to know who's infected. We'll have a whole series of drugs that we can take that can help us get over this and save us if we do get infected. And we'll have vaccines that we'll probably have to renew, whether it's every year, every two years, every three years, we're gonna to have to be renewing our vaccines to keep up with the virus changing. But we will get this under control in a way that lets our lives go on. But it won't be easy. We've gotta be vigilant. We've gotta replace complacency with vigilance. What is the best historical precedence for this? If, if we think about modern, uh, modern public health, when have we gotten through something like this? Well, we've gotten through it in the 1918 flu, the 1957-58 flu, and we've gotten through it for the HIV AIDS pandemic. I think most people forget that that virus has killed upwards of 35 million people uh, in the world. And mm -hmm. that is, uh, much more than this is uh, killed. And yet we've got another control. So modern science is capable of doing this. People have to cooperate, which they're not doing particularly well, especially over the last Christmas. But this, these are, this is infectious diseases we can control, but we cannot let down our vigilance. We can't assume that a vaccine is going to be the panacea. We've got to 
combine that with good public health measures and continued intensive research such as going on right now. That's right. We cannot get complacent. That was Access Health International Chairman and President Dr. William Hazeltine, founder of Human Genome Scientists. His autobiography, by the way, came out this year. It's entitled My Lifelong Fight Against Disease from Polio and AIDS to COVID-19. You're listening to Bloomberg Businessweek. Coming up, technology has been crucial in our fight against the virus. It certainly has, and in keeping us going during the pandemic. Up next, the tech trends that will dominate this year. We'll get that from the chief information officer at BNY Mellon's Pershing. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic from Bloomberg Radio. Well, whether it was the shift to remote work, the move to cloud computing software, the rise of video gaming, or the surge in e-commerce sales, one of the big winners of 2020, Tim, yeah, it was technology. Yeah, I'm using my phone more. I'm watching mm-hmm. more TV than I think than ever before. Don't know whether or not that's a good <laughs> thing. Carol, as we think about tech trends in the year ahead, you spoke with BNY Mellon Pershing's chief information officer, Ram Nagapan. And like so many of our guests, he started off by talking about working from home. We are all working remotely and we are doing pretty good from how we are working, uh, even though we are not really seeing face-to-face, but we are all 100% operational. Um, uh, On the technology point of view, I want to say technology has taken the center stage. Um, You know, it's moving from enabling the business to actually driving the business. What do you mean by that? What do you mean by that? Meaning people used to use technology to enable the business. Now technology is the driving factor. For example, without technology, you even cannot do certain things uh, since March, uh, I would say. Uh, Meaning when we build technology, we always talk, say, hey, build the technology for mobile first. You know, now we're all talking about build it for remote first because people just went through a big lesson that they need to operate everything remotely. And they need that capability. So technology is the one that is helping and actually driving to do those things. Well, BNY Mellon, Pershing, you guys, big financial company. And I do wonder, you know, there's a big debate about the working from home trend. And we have yet to see how long it sticks, how much it sticks. But I've had conversations with folks in the financial community who said, you know, we got rid of our offices in New York. We've got limited offices now outside of New York City. We can work from home and be just as productive. How do you see it, especially whether it's for BNY, Mellon and Pershing or whether it's above and beyond the greater financial community working from home? Does it stick longer than we may all realize at this point? Um, I would say at a very high level, every firm is is now capable of working remote. They're trying to perfect it. They're trying to figure out the next way of how things uh, people are going to work because uh, the way that we used to work is certainly going to change. I think it's the matter of all the technology that is needed to make the remote work more productive. Yeah, we do have video conferencing. We do have all the remote work capability, but I think the tools need to be a lot more better to make it even more uh, work extremely efficient and productive. So there's certainly going to be a lot of innovation going to happen in the collaboration technologies because what we have is working, but not really the perfect tools. Well, when you say we need more innovation, give me one example. Where do we need to be innovative? Where can we be better? Where do you expect we will be better? I mean, I think when you're having a video call 
you need to share things you need to collaborate ideas you need to show and present in a much more integrated way that's one thing the other thing you know i would also say is um you know multiple video system doesn't talk to each other like different companies have different video systems and they don't integrate you I mean if you have one i need to use that i cannot just two different things cannot talk to each other think about you have one phone i have one phone we call each other we can talk but not on a video system at this point so those kind of things are going to change collaboration uh, more of operating anywhere is going to happen in the collaboration pieces look at the healthcare area where mm-hmm. the telemedicine is also kind of a collaborative patient care but they need more more tools more uh, precision more look and feel touch and feel type of thing which is not available right now so you're going to see more of those innovations going to happen in this area right. i know you're going to see those tools in 2021 so ram let me a little bit of a word association game with you here um when you say ai where does ai artificial intelligence go in the new year and beyond artificial intelligence that's one of the i'm very excited about ai and its application and where it's going to go i wanted to say it's going to go into the edge computing and many application and i say edge computing let me explain artificial intelligence moving from an institution or in a contained space into your home speakers and into your coffee machines into your uh, pumps that you have water pumps in your basement things like that so what happens is they are able to move that to an edge devices and make the experience a lot better that's something i'm very excited more no things are going to come um in the ai space so ai is still untapped in my view more applications are going to happen in banking in financial services wealth as well as the day to day things that we use so to tell you edge computing ai on the edge devices It's something very exciting, and many people are working to get that applied. What about machine learning and big data? Where where do we go with that? I feel like big data, man. We've been talking about it for a few years, and I think yeah. we need to get smarter in terms of filtering through and really making it useful. But how do you see it? Yeah. So, a machine language is a machine learning is a part of an AI branch. Mm-hmm. Um, you use lots of data to learn from it. and to figure out many things like predictions and trends and advanced analytics so people are going to use that data apply machine language machine learning and kind of come up with a greater analytics uh, trying to tell you who's buying the product who could buy it next what you wanted to talk you know understanding the client behavior and be on top of the client experience these type of things to make the experience better the companies are going to go work with the data and these technologies where do you you know it's interesting because we've talked a lot about the medical world i feel like there's been a couple of worlds uh medicine uh healthcare and even education that really got kind of a kick in the pants this past year uh in terms of digitization and kind of coming forward although there's a long way to go especially when it comes to i kind of feel like both of those worlds but in particular healthcare how do you see technology and as a result of the pandemic in this past year really impacting the world of healthcare you you're going to see a lot of acceleration and in innovation in the healthcare area especially healthcare where wearables uh, telemedicine patient engagement digital therapeutics as well as remote diagnosis you're going to see all of it as even as as uh, 
robotic assisted surgery from remote uh, because as people were pushed to stay um, in their own places work from remote everything needs to operate remotely and you're going to see a lot in the medical area as well uh, so the medical is one of the biggest thing not only you know coming up with new drugs and vaccine and other things but especially digital therapeutics and digital diagnosis uh, we're going to see it many healthcare systems and healthcare devices are going to interact to make the next generation of the medicine possible well, you know, it's, it's interesting too, um, you know, Amazon, Berkshire, J.P. Morgan, their health venture that they just started a couple of years ago, three years ago, I think they launched. Um, everybody was excited that we all thought, okay, these three companies and the individuals behind these three companies, Warren Buffett, Jeff Bezos, and of course, Jamie Dimon, you know, if anybody's going to be able to figure out healthcare, they can do it. And yet, They've shut down that venture. And I do wonder, you know, how do you see it in terms of, as you say, technology is going to continue to kind of evade the healthcare space. But I mean, how do we do it? You know, can we take what we learned from vaccine development for COVID? Is there a way to kind of extrapolate that out and figure out how do we get a better, more coordinated, more productive healthcare uh, tracking system or healthcare system overall? See, what's, what's going to happen is there are different technologies, a range of technologies that are coming, and it's about applying these technology to the right problem space is the key. Uh, you mentioned vaccine technology. That is one type that they apply to create vaccine. But whereas remote diagnostic, digital therapeutics, or different technologies are needed, but they'll apply in that problem space to come up with a solution. So this whole thing is, and there's an array of technology, whether you apply in healthcare or whether you apply in banking or you can apply in, in wealth management. You can apply it to solve a specific problem using these technologies. And that's what we as technologies are very excited to actually solve problems in various vertical areas. Vertical meaning healthcare or it could be education, it could be banking. You have um, Bitcoin, which is on a currency side. You also have security tokens, tokenized security. So they are pretty much looking at it a different way. And uh, there's, there's a lot of regulations on it mm -hmm. and how you really wanted to um, take it to the client and what type you wanted to take. There's a lot of discussions and things still going on. Um, while I, I know there's a big uh, thing on Bitcoin and its price, um, but I would say security, tokenization, tokenized securities, cryptocurrency, these are various things. You're going to see people look at it in a different lens. And while on that topic, Tim, something we've talked about already so much this year, the total market value of cryptocurrencies, check it out, surpassing $1 trillion for the first time this week amid a frenzied and volatile rally in Bitcoin, which also hit another record. Yeah, I mean, I thought it was a big deal when Bitcoin hit $18,000 or $20,000. I know, it just <laughs> keeps going up. That was BNY Mellon's Pershing's Chief Information Officer, Ram Nagapan. You can hear that full conversation in our podcast feed. And that wraps up the first hour of the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Tim Stenovic. More ahead in our next hour, including why the pandemic shoved us into the future. In a big way. And speaking of the future, autonomous driving, cognitive TVs, what to expect from tech in the 
the new year. Sony Electronics North America president on the Consumer Electronics Show. I know that's a fave of yours. Yeah, I mean, I, let's just say I'm not so uh, disappointed not to be in Las Vegas this January. And maybe, just maybe, leisure traveling will be possible in 2021. Fingers crossed for that to happen. I could use a little vacation. We'll look at top destinations. And speaking of places to go. The latest on the Migration South. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic from Bloomberg Radio. Hi, I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Tim Stenovic of Bloomberg Quick Take. Plenty ahead in our second hour of the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week, including a sneak peek at the Consumer Electronics Show. We'll do that with Sony Electronics North America president. Plus, and knock on wood, Carol, we may get to travel this year for fun. And if so, we've got a list of the places you gotta go. And speaking of travel, Tim, I mean, fingers crossed that we'll get there. Financial firms, well, they're already traveling. They are trekking to South Florida. And the president of One Sotheby's International Realty on the rise in demand for real estate there. We begin this hour, though. It's a must read how the pandemic shoved us into the future. Bloomberg New Economy editorial director Andy Brown joined me with more on this and how this respiratory disease has forced a profound reckoning. We should note that this interview was done before the D.C. protest this week. Great to be back. Good to have you back. Um, Yeah. uh, It really does seem, notwithstanding what we've just been hearing on the news about this more virulent UK strain of the virus and the fact that it's landed in New York State, I think we are sort of looking forward now to a new world. uh, uh, We're in a much more hopeful place than we were just a few months ago. And it just seems to me that, you know, looking back historically at how disease has transformed the world, um, that, you know, there's no reason to believe that it won't be equally transformative this time. Um, You know, the two great transitions that I talked about in the column was the the transition in the, the first millennium during the Roman Empire when... Uh, The plague of Polonius, as it was called, killed so many slaves, it it ushered in a new era of feudalism. I mean, nominally, Mm -hmm. free serfs replaced slaves, and then centuries later, you had the Black Death, which killed so many slaves. It it increased um, the cost of labor. That broke up the estates of the feudal landowners and, and ended, or it was the beginning of the end of the feudal system. You know, and and you look at where we are now and all of the great learnings and great breakthroughs that we've seen just in this past year, starting with the vaccine itself, right? That, you know, everybody says, well, this this vaccine was developed in a rush, right? And and it's a reason that some people give for not wanting the vaccine. Actually, this this has been a decade or more in the making, and it's paralleled um, advances in genome sequencing and other fundamental foundational technologies which are now starting to find their breakthrough application. And I don't think it's being Pollyannish to think that we might see similar breakthroughs in other diseases and not just in biotech, not just in pharmaceutical, but in areas like climate tech, like environmental um, technologies. And, you know, the, the, the kind of the, the, the optimistic conclusion that, you know, looking at all of the changes that we've seen in the last year is that we may actually be on the verge of a new age of, of discovery. Yeah, I I think about it, too. We just talked with Dana Hall, who covers Tesla and Elon Musk, and said, you know, she said in just her world, and she's out on the West Coast, but she said 
especially anybody who was in California, we saw climate change, she said, firsthand. And there's just a new urgency when it comes to thinking about the cars you're going to buy, the products you're going to buy, and the impact it has on the environment. I, I agree that there's something globally that has definitely changed. What about when it comes to, we've been showing for our YouTube uh, viewers, you know, the relationship between Joe Biden and President Xi, I think we're all anticipating it, but China has really stepped forward in a big way. Yes, and um, I think we've seen that pretty dramatically in that agreement last week between China and the European Union, uh, this new investment agreement. This is a big win for Xi Jinping. This yeah. is a big snub for Joe Biden. He wanted to come in and he kept and he's talking about this grand coalition of democracies to stand up to China. Forget it not going to happen. You know, China has emerged from this pandemic as the world's most resilient, uh, most adaptable uh, economy, made huge mistakes. Xi Jinping is not trusted around the world. Uh, China's soft power has, 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 has really been uh, uh, exposed um, for, the past, for the past years, bullying, wolf warrior diplomacy, and so on and so forth. Yet, um, you know, it has, it has emerged as the only major growing economy for, 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 for year after year, as far as the eye can see, China is going to be supplying at least, at the very least, a third of global growth. No country, no company is, uh, is going to pass that up. You know, and so you have the EU, all these democracies that looked past all manner of human rights abuses that have, that have taken occurred in China over the past year, not least the incarceration of a million or more Uyghurs, and still decided that they are going to uh, do an investment uh, deal and snub Joe Biden. Yeah, I thought, I'm so glad you brought that up. Uh, when it we talked about it on air last week, Andy, and I thought that was just so significant. Um, I know it had it was an agreement, investment agreement that they were working on for a long time, but to see the EU and China ultimately tie it up just, you know, in the nick of time as we wrapped up the year, I just thought that was incredibly telling. Um, just got about 30 seconds. The inequities, do we come out better eventually as a result? Do you think, like we've seen in history in past? Well, I think what this pandemic has shown is that, as the economist Adam Tu says, poverty is a choice. Mm -hmm. We are spending trillions and trillions of dollars replacing income, bailing out. Nobody is worried about inflation. Nobody's worried about crowding out private investment. The markets certainly aren't worried about this. We can afford it. If we can right. afford to keep worker payment going now, why can't we do it in the future? Just some of the issues that he and his team and safe to say the world at large will be considering this year. That's Bloomberg New Economy Editorial Director Andy Brown. Yeah, so much on everyone's plate. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week coming up. When you boil it down, it's immersive. It's really entertaining. It makes it connects sound and visual like your brain actually calculates it. Get ready for really, really smart TVs <laughs> that actually, Tim, might understand your brain. Uh, I don't know if I'm ready for that. I'm not. I know I'm not. We're going to catch up with the president of Sony Electronics North America. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic. 
from Bloomberg Radio. So it's almost that time of year when some of the biggest tech businesses, thought leaders and policymakers convene to launch products, build brands and form partnerships. That's right, Carol. We're talking about the Consumer Electronics Show or as it's known these days, CES. It's convening virtually this year and you spoke with Sony Electronics North America President Mike Fasulo all about it. I did, but Tim, I got to say, I had to begin with getting his view on the turmoil in Washington this week. I think I felt like many of us, you know, it was tragic. It was sickening. And, you know, we, we and I condemn any lawlessness and violence. You know, I really feel uh, sadly for those that were physically hurt or, or mentally hurt. I mean, I couldn't imagine being at the Capitol. But, um, yeah, I mean, I condemn it. It's terrible. So, and I do wonder... Day for democracy. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I do wonder, you know, it's been a year, if I, you know, go back to 2020, excuse me, a year where I feel like there's a lot of problems that have been a part of our society and that they were just laid bare again because of the health pandemic, because of what happened with George Floyd and others, uh, whether it's diversity and inclusion, inequities, the gap in wealth in this country. And I do think ultimately as a leader, don't you, you know, what can we do? What's the role of the private sector, do you think, in all of this? Well, I, I think there's, you know, looking at it from the silver lining side, uh, which is really hard to do when there's tragedy and mm-hmm. human lives involved negatively. But, but, you know, it has brought appropriate attention that we're not doing enough, right? And, and from the private sector side, from the, from the Sony side, you know, CSR, whether it's around the environment, whether it's around social justice, whether it's um, pandemic, COVID-related, and everything in between, you know, that's a commitment to ours and, and something we take very seriously as one of our responsibilities. And this past year, uh, we have been very, very active on that front, um, obviously inside our company, uh, but also out in the marketplace, you know, working with a number of institutions that you know, I'd be more than happy to share with you, should you want specifics. Uh, but, uh, you know, trying to affect real change. You know, I well, think it's social justice. Okay. No, and I love it. I love specifics. And I promise you we're going to talk about CES. Um, but I want to, so in terms of really being a game changer, how do you, how do we, we've all talked about like some of the inequities uh, and whether it's diversity and inclusion, you know, how do we really create real action and change in your view? I think the I think the private sector has a a large responsibility uh, for this. You know, frankly, I don't think my generation did a great job. Mm. Uh, I'm, you know, I've been in in the uh, workforce for almost forty years, so I'm I'm the old white guy. But the uh, you know we haven't we haven't done enough to affect real change. It, it goes well beyond, in my belief, words and even donations. You know, how do we truly impact change? You know, I think about um, uh, COVID-19 and social justice, and, mm-hmm. and they're, they're connected. It's not independent. Right? So how do we get to those underprivileged? How do we get to those that ordinarily don't get the chance or the privileges that folks like I get and really put them in a position for success, build on their confidence, give them the tools, and invest in STEAM, Right, and mm. we say STEAM, not STEM, because arts right. equals creativity to us and innovation. Uh, but but there's tremendous we could do. I also think that the more we do together, right, not one single company, 
but groups of companies and networks, et cetera. Agreed. The more we do together, you know, the more impact we'll have in alignment. So as promised, um, Mike, I do want to talk about Consumer Electronics Show, which kicks off virtually next week. What are you guys going to be highlighting? And I'm curious what you think are some of the big trends that we all need to know about. Well, it's going to be a different uh, CES this year, that's for sure, being, being virtual. Yeah. But uh, we're, we're still very excited and, you know, Sony being an entertainment company, we always have a lot of news to share. And my role in electronics, um, even there, there's so many announcements. So let me try to try to boil it down. You know, we're, we are announcing new audio applications um, that we call 360 Reality Audio, which is very immersive and surround sound in multiple applications. And we'll announce that next week. So I won't get too much into that. Robotics for all ages, whether it's, you know, our, our robotic dog, Ibo, or Couve for STEAM and children. I think what I'm most excited about is our announcements around our new uh, cognitive intelligent TVs, world's first cognitive intelligent TVs. So can I just tell you, we were discussing this on our planning call, and we're like, all right, cognitive TV, what exactly does it mean? It kind of freaks me out if it's going to know what's kind of going on in my head. So tell me exactly what it means. What's the experience for someone who's got a cognitive TV? I mean, it really, when you, when you boil it down, it's immersive. It's really entertaining. It makes it connects sound and visual like your brain actually calculates it, not just one aspect, but puts it all together, including where you're focused on the on the TV. So it, it brings all of that together and brings everything to life and makes it lifelike. It's, it's again, it's going to be a challenge with um, virtual because I always say seeing is believing. And in this case, seeing and hearing is believing. But it is the best quality picture that... Um, I think is on the planet. So wait, so help me out. So is it just a case of an incredible processor? So exactly what we're seeing visually and uh, or hearing is just like I've, I've been pulling up some screens uh, on um, on my computer. I mean, is it just what we see, what we hear is just kind of amped up from what we've got right now, potentially? It is definitely an incredible processor. Yeah, um, I think my engineers would be angry if I said <laughs> just an incredible processor. Thanks, boss. But, but it is it is an incredible processor, but it, it's different than uh, AI, artificial intelligence, in that it's simultaneously calculating multiple variables, including including sound. Right. Uh, so you know it'll not only in all content. So it'll not only make it feel lifelike, uh, but if you're watching a concert, you'll feel like you're at the concert. You know, if you're looking at internet, if you listen to Bloomberg, your voice is going to sound spectacular. Good. That's all we care it's about. Really remarkable. <laughs> so we call it zones. Yep. So the you know the processor calculates zone by zone, and then uh, tries to think as if your your brain thinks and your your eyes, you know, where your eyes will be at a point in time. It's not looking at you. There's no mm-hmm. camera watching you. CES kicking off virtually next week. That's Sony Electronics North America president, Mike Fasulo. So, Tim, coming up, do you remember when traveling was a thing, whether it was for work or pleasure, we just did it? Yeah, I do. I would really like to go skiing right now. But you're not. I'm not. All right. Well, maybe, just maybe, we can get on a plane again later on this year. We've got a thoughtful and pandemic-influenced list of top destinations in 2021. This is Bloomberg. 
This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic from Bloomberg Radio. While we don't know when it will be safe to resume international travel, any kind of travel for that matter, we do know that it will be fundamentally different, Tim, on the other side of COVID. Yeah, I mean, I imagine that I'll be wearing a mask on an airplane for a long time in the future. Airlines, airports, cruise lines, and hotels are still working to figure out new social distancing, cleaning, and safety guidelines. And Carol, you caught up with Bloomberg Pursuits travel editor Nikki Eckstein to help us understand the future of travel in the COVID-19 era and where we might want to go. Yeah, totally. Uh, And we began talking about how she actually put together a list of places to travel in a year where we know, Tim, lockdowns are still in place. This was such a challenge, Carol. I, for one, am still not traveling, even though it's so intrinsically part of my job. So to start wrapping my head around what's exciting for the year to come is such an abstraction. And it's difficult to think about what it implies in terms of safety and everything else that comes with it. So the first thing that we really decided to do was to step back and think about what are the places that have really taken a deep breath and recovered because of the absence of travel? What are the places that actually really, really need the presence of travelers to keep going? And how do we use our next vacation whenever it is? to kind of point towards the latter, to say, how do we Mm. use our travel to make good in this world? It's a lot more thoughtful and deliberate, right? Yeah. I mean, I think we all need a vacation. There's no question (laughs) about that. And we we really want to be more... Um, we want to be more thoughtful, more deliberate about the way that we that we travel and the impact that we leave, leave on the destinations that we visit. So this is really doing double duty. It's about doing something that's good for us and doing something that's good for the places that we're visiting. Listen, I feel like the last couple of years and this year has really, or this past year, 2020, has really imprinted it on all of us, this whole idea of multiple stakeholders in whatever we do. So we have to think about whether you're a company, you think about workers, you think about your customers, you have to think about the environment, you have to think about things like diversity. There's so many things, sustainability, and I do feel like it's it's into travel as well as you just kind of so eloquently laid out. So you cover a range from Alabama to the Arctic Bath, which is in northern <laughs> Sweden, in case people didn't know. I didn't know. And Latvia to Laos and Nepal to <laughs> Napa Valley. So take me wherever you want to go. <laughs> well, we do. We have trips on every continent this year because Antarctica is on the list. So we really do have pole to pole. Um, and, and what's reasonable and feasible for you might be different than the next person based off of what makes you feel comfortable in the coming year. But yes, we are thinking about different themes in which you can engage on your travels, supporting communities, rebuilding economies, supporting the arts and culture. Um, For me, I know that we all need a little bit of hospitality and to be taken care of. I am dying to go to the British Virgin Islands and support Ah. an economy that has been battered after years of terrible hurricanes and then COVID on top of it. And just sit at one of these beautiful resorts that have been rebuilt in the last few years. All of them were rebuilt in the last few years after Irma and Maria. And they're all just dying for us to come back because they've been offline for like four years. It's unbelievable. So that's where I, I want to go first. Well, you I mentioned taken care of somewhere where I'm also helping to take care of others. Well, you talk about, is it on Virgin Gorda, Rosewood, Little Dick's Bay, reintroducing oh. treehouse suites with outdoor showers, wraparound beach views. I mean, it sounds like heaven right now. The, the killer with that one is that I was supposed to be there at that oh, exact resort sorry. in May. Uh, yeah, I, right. Because this so is what you, this I'm is putting it back. On this the is calendar. well, see, and there you go. Because this is why we like talking to you. Because you actually go to these places, Alabama. My <laughs> our producer Paul Brennan brought this up on our planning call this morning, and it's like Alabama. Tell us about Alabama. I think this Alabama. is a really thoughtful one. 
So what's really interesting about Alabama is that if you put aside everything that's going on in terms of the conversation about the social justice movement, Alabama itself is actually a very interesting destination. It's rich in history. It's also a really ripe food destination. The restaurants in Alabama are popping, which people don't realize. But now that everybody has social justice on the brain, as they should, it's even more relevant in terms of continuing our education in terms of what race relations mean, both past and present in the U.S. And there's a lot of really interesting stuff to see and do there. Um, there's the beautiful National Memorial for Peace and Justice. Um, there's the Freedom Rides Museum. All of these yeah. sites that really evocatively mark all of the, the building blocks of what we've experienced in the last year. And I think most New Yorkers will tell people from out of town to stay away right now. But as people start to get vaccinated and things become safe again, and this is happening now, you know, we can see this on the horizon. It's also a really unique time to come visit in the sense that you can have entire neighborhoods, entire museums more or less to yourself in a way that mm. has never been possible. As soon as I get vaccinated, I guess uh, sign me up, Carol. Listen, I have to say, I, I'm totally with you on that. I mean, I think about how many trips I did not go on in the past year. A lot of them work trips, but even for pleasure, uh, just going to see family, you know, yeah. a couple states away. Uh, we just didn't do it. It's been a complete lockdown. So I think we're all fingers crossed that maybe, I don't know, middle part of the year, later this year, we can think about traveling again. Well, I certainly hope so. That was Bloomberg Pursuits travel editor, Nikki Eckstein. You can read her full pursuit story and get the entire travel list on the Bloomberg and at Bloomberg.com. It is an incredible list. All right, you're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Speaking of going places, financial firms, man, they are continuing to head south. More on the trend with the president of One Sotheby's International Realty. That's up next. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic from Bloomberg Radio. So, Tim, one of the things I'm obsessed with is watching real estate. I've been, you know, checking out all of the headlines that are constantly crossing the Bloomberg uh, and the impact that the pandemic has had on real estate generally. There's been a number of headlines this week. Office vacancies in Manhattan jumping to a 21st century record as the COVID-19 pandemic froze new rental deals and sublease opening soared. A wave of firms, Carol, setting up bases in Florida. Right. Virtu Financial heading there. Goldman Sachs weighing plans to house a key division in South Florida. Carol, you spoke with one Sotheby's international realty president, Daniel De La Vega, from Miami. And Tim, he's been really busy. The pandemic certainly had an impact on his business. We're experiencing something that we've never experienced before, quite frankly. And we've always had the no personal income tax. We've always had a lower corporate tax rate. We've always had no state income tax. But because of the pandemic, because of these companies realizing that they don't have to be all the time in these offices they're all relocating to South Florida and it's been a boom like we've never experienced before. And, and I don't really see it slowing down in 2021. And it's incredible to be living here and seeing this happen. Well, what's interesting, though, is that I think it's fair to say that there are a lot of people who work at New York financial firms that like living in the New York metro area. They like New York City. They like the New York City suburbs. So I do wonder about, you know, in terms of the people who are moving down, um, is it everyone? We heard from the Goldman Sachs CEO uh, earlier this year that he expects by the end of the year to see his workers back here in uh, offices in New York City. So who is it, you know, moving? Is it smaller boutique firms? I mean, you did mention, uh, I think it was, did you say BlackRock or Blackstone that's actually moving down? Blackstone, Blackstone. Yeah. So, 
So you're seeing right now divisions of some of these larger corporations. So Goldman's going to move their asset management department, or at least there's rumors that they're going to move it. So I guess they're dipping their toe sort of here in the sand, no pun intended, to see if they like it, to see if they can actually attract a a good talent pool. But we we are seeing it happen more and more, and and we really uh, believe that it is going to continue. And yes, some of the small, we're seeing this movement now of tech firms, and some of the tech firms are smaller firms, although some of the buyers of some of these residential property properties are large. Ta- I mean, very, very large uh, tech executives like Keith Rabos, who's with PayPal, Square, LinkedIn, et cetera. He moved from San Francisco. So we're seeing a little bit of both. A little bit of both. Yeah, it's, it's kind of interesting to see. Um, having said that, there's great cities like Miami. There's great cities like Chicago, like LA, like San Francisco, like New York. Do you anticipate as someone who follows um, the real estate market that we're going to see a demise of some of those big cities or not necessarily? Maybe there's a little bit of a, a rework for a little bit, but ultimately when we get on the other side of this, what do you expect? You know, what we've predominantly seen is New York, the tri-state area in New York. And, and again, it's a little bit of both when I say what I'm about to say. You've got a lot of large hedge funders, investment bankers that are moving down and saying, this is temporary. This is a three to four year move for me because I need to be in Manhattan. Private equity deals are done in Manhattan. They're done out in the Hamptons in the summer, et cetera. So that's where I need to be. And unless these companies dip their toes in the sand, really like what they see, and then move the entire organization, I think you will see a bit of that migration kind of heading back north as things start to um, normalize a little bit. But look, for us, it's great that they're coming, that they're realizing what a great place it is here in South Florida, and that they can actually work here and operate out of here. And I think that the way we're operating as businesses will continue to be a bit more virtual. I think that Zoom is going to be something of the future. And that is the way that transactions are going to take place and everything's Mm. moving to a more tech platform and it's just going to embrace everything that's happening. Who's buying properties on a global scale right now when it comes to South Florida and the proper and the, and the markets that you play into? Oh my God, it's so many people. So it just went public today. Uh, we just brokered a deal for Randy Gerber and Cindy Crawford on North Bay Road on Miami Beach, mm-hmm. which was pretty interesting. For a home, uh, I'm assuming residential for, here. For a, yeah, for a residential home. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, same with Tom Brady and Giselle. They bought an Indian Creek, which is great. And we spoke a little bit earlier about Goldman Sachs. I mean, those are celebrities. Right? We spoke a little bit earlier about Goldman Sachs and uh, Douglas Sachs, the managing director there. He he bought a home for $12 million on Miami Beach. Um, John Oranger, who's the founder of Shutterstock, he bought a home for $42 million on Miami Beach. Sam Nazarian in the hospitality industry just closed on something in Gables Estates in Coral Gables. So it's all industries celebrities, everybody. It just seems like, you know, South Florida is the spotlight of everything. And we've spoken about Miami, but it's really happening in Dade, Broward, Palm Beach, all of South Florida. I mean, Miami-Dade County year over year is up over 30%, Broward 42, the island of Palm Beach over 50. So you're blended at over almost 35% throughout South Florida. And this is on single family homes and condominiums. Um, So the increases that we've been experiencing are crazy. And it's We've had almost like this reset, Carol, of pricing. I mean, you've got homes mm-hmm. that are up 50% in some of these luxury neighborhoods, and you're looking at these houses that are now trading for 20, that pre-pandemic you couldn't get 10 million for them, and it's just become the new norm. 
and we've had this this now reset of pricing that that is what the numbers are. So it's, it's incredible. I mean, yeah, yeah. There, there's some deals over a hundred million that are going to be done before this quarter's over. You're talking about residential, or no? You're talking about Res- commercial? Wow. No, residential, residential. Yeah. I well, mean, commercial is on fire as well. We run a commercial firm that's called One Commercial. I mean, the demand for office right now is strong in the Brickell Downtown Corridor. You've got triple net numbers around $45, 64 a square $45 to $65 a square foot. That's the range. Um, and there's over, I would say, a million square feet right now in demand for office space in these areas. So it's not only people buying these, these residential homes, right. but they're also looking to move their headquarters. Daniel, or at least divisions within these corporations. Daniel, is it a trend that would have happened if we didn't have COVID or is there, is this the COVID factor? I think it's the COVID factor. Okay. I, I, I really think it's the COVID factor. Like I said earlier, I mean, we've always had, had, you know, a strong migration from the Northeast, from Canada. We started to see a little bit of Californian tech to service Latin America, et cetera, but it really is the COVID factor. I mean, in March and April, we didn't know what was going to happen. And then come May, June, July, which are typically our slowest months, they were our strongest months. We were up over 190% in July alone. So it happened and it happened very quickly. Well, and when I, you know, when I kicked this off and we started talking about who's buying and you said, you know, a lot of people are buying, um, it used to be a lot of, I feel like foreign or non-U.S. investors and buyers. What are we seeing from Europe? What are we seeing from Latin America? What are we seeing from Asia? It's pretty dry. So we traditionally, especially in our new condominium division, we saw a lot of what we would call flight capital from Latin America. And that has just dried up because of everything that's happening in the respective economies out in, down in Latin America. So we we have just seen the domestic buyer. I mean, and because of, you know, the low interest rate environment, we've also seen a lot of refinancing. So that's, of course, helped sort of spur the market forward. But it's really been the domestic buyer from the Northeast, from California, that's been relocating here. Boston, Washington, Chicago. We just did a deal. We're representing 1000 Museum, which is in downtown Miami, Zaha Hadid building. We just did a deal mm-hmm. for $15 million, over 1500 a square foot or $16 million, 1600 a square foot to a buyer from Chicago. So it's just, it's, it's, it's incredible what's happening. So, okay, I'm going to just kind of, put a if you weren't in Florida and this wasn't the market you were playing in right now when it comes to and selling and and uh, working with and um, if it wasn't South Florida or Florida where would it be that you would want to be working in me in New York City I think that there's see I, I, I go to New York City often with my family for business etc we love it and my wife and I this year were talking about how sad it was she does a girl's trip actually every Christmas to New York and they couldn't yeah. go and then some of my buddies and I were talking on New Year's about when, when, when is the right time to go back to New York? And I hope it's very soon. But from a business perspective, I heard you say earlier, and I agree with you, prices, especially on the condominium front, on the new developments, have not gone down the way you've expected them to or the way we've expected them to. Yeah. It's helped kind of firm, and you are seeing some deals get done, 30, 40 million. But I do believe there will be opportunity. Uh, and I think that it's, it's, it's the, it's the intelligent thing to do to be investing right now in Manhattan. That's one Sotheby's International Realty President, Daniel De La Vega. Carol, I got to tell you, um, among the apps that I use most on my phone, 
It's yeah. got to be Twitter. And then second is Street Easy because I keep looking at real estate and I'm not seeing the prices around here go down that much. And that's what's really interesting. I saw a story this week that just talked about sellers are kind of holding off. They're not so willing to kind of cut prices to move properties. So I think, you know, what we're going to see in terms of real estate fallout, I don't know. I think time will tell longer term. We've heard about people leaving the big cities. I don't know if that's really going to happen. Yeah, I mean, in the short term, maybe. But in the long term, I'm bullish on New York. I am too. Always, always. I've heard about the demise of New York City for a long time. And man, we just keep coming back stronger and stronger. Well, that wraps up the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Tim Stenovec. Be sure to tune into The Daily Show Monday through Friday, starting at 2 p.m. Wall Street time. And be sure to check out, too, our Bloomberg Business Week podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget, the show is also on YouTube. Just search Bloomberg Global News. And be sure to check out our Bloomberg Business Week Extra podcast this week. Dr. Chris Byrer, professor in public health and human rights at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health, giving us the latest on the virus and vaccine. Bloomberg School of Public Health, supported by Michael R. Bloomberg, founder of Bloomberg LP and Bloomberg Philanthropy. And you can also see me on Bloomberg Quick Take. It's available at Bloomberg.com slash QT and on streaming platforms like Roku, Apple TV, Samsung TV and more. And Bloomberg Business Week is available on newsstands now at Bloomberg.com and always on the Bloomberg Terminal. Tim, we did it. Our first weekend show together, really our first official week together on our daily radio show. And what a week it was, just nonstop headlines. You know, and the big headlines of the week, of course, having to do with politics, having Mm -hmm. to do with the virus, the markets. Um, These are things that are not going away, Carol. These are things we're going to be focusing on for a big part of the year. Yes, absolutely. Top of our agenda and also top of the agenda for the new incoming Biden administration. So lots to come. Have a safe weekend, everybody. This is Bloomberg.